Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the gospel, which comes from the gospel of Matthew in the 26th chapter, verses 26 through 30, taking place at the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Bible is full of music. When the Israelites get across the Red Sea at the expense of the Egyptians, Moses' sister pulls out her tambourine and leads them in a song. Jesus is born amidst the songs of the angels. And in the book of Revelation, we sing that all of heaven seems to be singing most of the time. As I mentioned with the children, the book of Psalms was the songbook for Israel. The Psalms weren't meant as poems to be read. They were songs to be sung, songs for absolutely every occasion and mood. They're not meant as a theological treatise about what God wants us to think or feel. They're the record of how God's people actually did think and feel as they faced both life's joys and life's tragedies. Sometimes they rejoiced in God's protection, and sometimes they wanted God to dash the children of their enemies against rocks. They're the real songs of a real people as they dealt with the ups and downs of real life. They were also the songs of the Christian church for many years. In the early years of this country, chanting the Psalms was the only music that was acceptable in Christian worship. It took a full hundred years for American Christians to break down and sing some of that radical, morally suspect, harmony-dependent singing that was coming out of England at the time. Awful new songs like Amazing Grace and Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. After all, lush harmonies in a distinct meter could lead to other sensual desires, and the church would be headed to hell in a handbasket. And there were those words to those other songs, why they didn't even have any Bible verses in them. They weren't proper for the church. Struggles over musical styles in churches are not at all new. But in the Bible itself, they sing with wild abandon. As we read, Psalm 150 pulls out every instrument in the book for the praise of God, and Israel sings its way through history. They sing songs of victory, and they sing laments when they're in great pain. That's the inheritance of the New Testament Jews, including both Jesus and Paul. And we see both Jesus and Paul singing at incredibly difficult times in their lives. As Jesus is about to leave the gathering of his closest disciples for the last time, after they've shared a last supper together and he's taught them all that he can teach them in words, they sing a hymn together. 
Then Jesus heads to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays an anguished prayer before his arrest. And in the story from Acts that Patty read, we find Paul and Silas singing while they're actually in prison. They've just been stripped, severely beaten, and they're thrown in prison with their feet in stocks. And in that condition, they sing to God. I don't know that Paul and Silas ever had voice lessons. I don't know if the songs that they sang in that prison were proper songs by good composers, or if they were just sort of making up songs as they went. I don't know if they sounded like Pavarotti or like a dog in pain. But I do know that the other prisoners listened and that God responded to their singing with an earthquake that set them free. Sometimes I think we've confused the point of Christian singing with the expectations of the entertainment world. It isn't about the quality of the performance. It's about the sincerity of the heart and the need of a soul to connect with its creator in that deep way that music provides. And it does that whether we're singing on pitch or if our tune is so far out of the basket that nobody can even find it. When I think of singing, I remember a funeral that I did up in Dover for the wife of a longtime member of the church. The couple had been married many, many years, and they had been inseparable until that moment. We gathered in the church, and the family wanted the congregation to join them in song. So we stood up and we sang a favorite of many of that generation, How Great Thou Art. Her husband was in the family pew right in front of the pulpit, and I will never ever forget the way that he sang that hymn. It wasn't coming from his lips. That song was coming out of his soul. His whole body sang that song as if it was the last thing that was keeping him alive, and maybe it was. He became that song. He was one with it. And I cried as I watched him sing for the sake of all the love that he'd known, begging the greatness of God to hold him when his own strength wasn't enough. I know many, many musicians who hate that song, who think it isn't good music and who sigh very deep sighs when a pastor picks it to sing. But that's not what Christian singing is about. It's about what's needed in the soul. It's about connecting with God. When I think of singing, I also think of my mother. Like me, she's an alto. And I remember as a child wondering, as we sang together in church, why she was always singing the wrong notes. Because she was just singing the alto line, and I didn't know any better. I just knew I heard the melody, and that, that wasn't it. But I also remember that her favorite Bible passage is a musical one. It's from the book of Revelation in the fifth chapter, where 10,000 times 10,000 angels and the living creatures and the 24 elders and all of the wild and woolly inhabitants of both heaven and earth are singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. She couldn't even read that passage without welling up with tears of joy. I'm humbled when I think about my mother's favorite Bible passage because my favorite passages are, in essence, all about me. They're passages that remind me that God loves me, that God won't abandon me, God will take care of me, 
God has my greatest good in mind, even when things seem to be going badly. Those are the passages that I turn to, the things that help me to deal with my life. But my mother somehow learned early on that Christian faith wasn't really about her, that it was about the greatness and the glory of God. She didn't sing God's praise because God had been especially good to her in life. Her own mother abandoned her when my mother was four. I didn't even know where she was for a month. She'd run off with another man. She was raised in poverty by her great-grandmother. She was widowed at only 48 years old. While even so, she always had gratitude in her heart. That's never been why she sings. She sings for the same reason that all the inhabitants of earth and heaven sing in Revelation 5. Because God is worthy of praise. And she just feels that somewhere deep in her soul. I hope to get there someday. Like some musicians have issues with how great thou art. I have very ambivalent feelings about the hymn that I've chosen for our hymn of dedication this morning. Robert Lowry wrote the song back in 1869. It was written as a Sunday school song. Musically, it's not all that interesting. And there have been times in my life when I've found the music kind of downright annoying. (laughs) And yet it keeps coming back to me again and again because the melody does stick with you and because the words are as true as any words that I know. When the storms and tragedies of life hit and I find myself bogged down in my own little pity party, somewhere in the distance, I can hear this song. It seems to talk of the revelation scene that my mother so loves. My life flows on in endless song. Above earth's lamentation, I hear the clear, though far off hymn, that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? I think that's what Christian faith ultimately does for us. The message of Easter tells us that above the darkness of the crucifixion, above the laments of Mary and the denials of Peter, there is a clear, though far-off hymn that hails a new creation. No matter what swirls around us, there's music playing in the distance, telling us of a final victory, of a story that's more true than the one that we're currently hearing in this life. What, though my joys and comforts die, I know my Savior liveth. What, though the darkness gather round, songs in the night he giveth. I think that's why Paul and Silas could sing, beaten and bloodied in prison. I think that's why the other prisoners listened. The chorus goes, No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? That's the message that keeps bringing me back. To me, the song is sort of like an annoying relative who has personal habits that embarrass you in public, but who has wisdom that you can't be long without, and you keep going back and going back. I've often wished that the tune would go out of my head 
And yet, over time, I've grown to love its quirky ways because it helps me to sing when I'm in prison. Like my mother's favorite Bible passage, it reminds me that it doesn't really matter if all my joys and comforts die because it's not about me. My Savior liveth and will give me songs in the night just as he gave them to Paul and Silas. There's an eternal song that's going on above earth's lamentation. And I need only to quiet my soul long enough to be able to hear it. Amen.